The following presentation by Monument Capital Management, LLC, is intended for general information purposes only. Please listen to additional important disclosures at the end of this presentation. Welcome to the Off the Wall Podcast. A little bit Wall Street, a little bit off the wall. It's your go-to for unfiltered, straightforward wealth advice on topics that founders, business owners, and executives care about. And now, here are your hosts, Dave Armstrong and Jessica Gibbs from Monument Wealth Management. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Off the Wall. Dave, hello. Yes, hello. Mm-hmm. It's our it's our famous and, yeah. and, and viral <laughs> quarterly review podcast. They're going viral. Markets. They're go- I mean, I'm telling you, it's like th- tomorrow you're going to see on the news that... Um, Taylor Swift will be second on the evening news to this podcast and its popularity. So, the Swifties are coming. That's for us. that's okay. where this is going. Yes, right. exactly. Can we get a Swifty to like? Can we get Taylor Swift to like intern here or something, or just like yeah, sure. pose in front of the door? I don't know. No, That'd be great. Uh, yeah. Dream big, Dave. But no. yeah, yeah, I always do. <laughs> All right. Uh, yes. Yeah, so as Dave said, we're back with our our very popular series of quarterly market reviews. Also, we'll be talking year to date. Um, we have, as always, Aaron Hay and Nate Tonsager from the Monument Wealth Ma- or, uh, Asset Management team. Hey, Aaron and Nate. Hi guys. Hey there. All right, so I want to dive in, as is our our typical structure. Dave, I wanted you to give me a high-level overview, what happened in the quarter. Also would appreciate some context for year-to-date, because I feel like, you know, the quarter and maybe what's happening year-to-date, those are little different stories, and I think it's always helpful to remember what's the bigger context. Yeah, and, and you know, and and even even more on that, you know, 12-month trailing is a different story, sure. three-year trailing is a different story, so, yeah. but... Um, Yes, we're here talking about the third quarter, so we'll focus on that. So, you know, cue the cloudy music. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> the S&P was down about 3.3% for the third quarter, um, but it also remains up 13.1% year to date. So, you know, I know we gave some back in the third quarter, specifically in September. It's just really hard to keep watching the market keep going down like that. But the S&P um, 500 did finish Q3 at 4288 and you compare that to the January 22, so January 22, all-time high of 47.97. So it's still about 11% down from that all-time high. And a little wonky here, but you know the S and P 500 is trading at a multiple, a forward PE multiple. So what that means is they use the earnings that are projected for the 12 months coming up. So forward price to earnings ratio of 17.8 percent. And historically, the forward PE on the S and P 500 is 16.76. So it's a percentage point higher than historical. But you know, it's not like we're overextended in valuations or anything like that. So I actually look at that as being a pretty healthy valuation. It's not frothy out there. Uh, year to date, the three best performing sectors are communication services at positive. 40.4% year-to-date, 4.04. Technology sector was up 34.7% year-to-date, and the consumer discretionary is coming in the third best-performing sector at positive 26.7. Now, losers year-to-date, healthcare was down 4.1% year-to-date, real estate's down 8.1%, and utilities are down 14.4%. But what's interesting or noteworthy is that if you look back at the three best performing sectors since the March 2020 low, so like COVID, right? Mm -hmm. Through the end of the third quarter of this year, energy 
is the best performing sector at a positive 349% return off that low. Technology is 143%. So like energy at a 2x over technology, but you really just don't hear that much about people talking about energy. Everybody's talking about tech, 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 tech. Mm -hmm. And then industrials is up 121% of that March 2020 low. So I I find it interesting that two of the highest returning sectors, uh, energy and industrials, weren't even in the top or the bottom of the 2023 year-to-date winners or losers. So just sort of an interesting little tidbit there about stealth rallies, stealth (laughs) returns, diversification, the whole song and dance. All right. Well, I I like good news, as we know. So um, I want to narrow in on uh, what performed well in Q3 2023. And Aaron, I want to start with you. Yeah. So kind of piggybacking off of, Dave, what you said, really the only sector with any strength whatsoever this past quarter was energy. Uh, Up double digits during the quarter, the next best performing sector um, was up only about a percent or so. I believe it was uh, financials, actually. I don't have the, the exact chart up here. But just kind of calling back to uh, a piece we put out on the blog a couple weeks ago, our RRG piece. As a reminder, RRG stands for Relative Rotation Graphs. And just as a kind of a synopsis of that blog, it's it's a visual way of depicting relative strength among really anything. But in this case, we're gonna we're gonna call out sectors here since we're talking about the broad market. And going back to energy, it's the only sector that's residing in the green, what we call leading quadrant right now. And outside of that, there's not a whole lot of, um, there's not a, a whole lot of good news in these other sectors. Healthcare appears to be proving a little bit on what we call a weekly basis, but nearly everything else is kind of sort of rolled over and, and indicates a bad quote unquote heading from a, a momentum perspective. Again, that's, that's more of a short-term look at the market. When you break things out on a monthly or even a yearly basis, the the picture looks a lot different, and of course, you can you can pop open even underperforming sectors like uh, like utilities in this instance, and you could find quote unquote good stocks within there. Although I would guess there's probably not a whole lot of good stocks in there right now, but uh, that's really been the the only thing that's been working uh, in the third quarter, which ended on September 30th. You know, I think one thing that jumps out to me as a top performer in Q3 is kind of a story that's been playing out in all 20. 20- 23, and that's the Magnificent Seven stocks is what they are being coined. So the big tech names that we talked about, I know Dave, Aaron, you guys talked about energy. That number two performer you mentioned, Dave, was tech. So it is contributing some performance that you're seeing long-term and in this year specifically. In Q3, though, within that basket, you did start to see some dispersion. So what I mean by that is the biggest names like Apple and Microsoft, those had very tough Q3s. With you know Apple being down 11 and a half percent, Microsoft being down seven, so that's kind of why you saw some of the pullback at the index level. It's kind of a story we've been talking about all year. I've written about it earlier. As indexes have become over concentrated in some of those names, so it's tough to see index level performance when their top names are the laggards. Now, good news because we do want to talk about good news, and it's maybe how you frame it in good news is. One of the other things that really underperformed in the quarter was duration, and so U.S. long-term Treasuries. Um, And we proxy that by an ETF, TLT is the ticker. So long-term U.S. Treasuries, again, was down 13% for the quarter. So those are your long-term bonds. We're down 13%. And that's really what happened in Q3 was the story. And I think we might talk about it a little bit later. But the adjustment that's happening in the markets right now is as the Fed, and we're seeing some of the data come in, 
investors are adjusting the long end of the yield curve to bring it closer to the short end. So as I mentioned, long-term bonds were down 13%. Short-term bonds were about flat for the quarter. So what that does is people have been talking about an inverted yield curve for so long, and that's a predictor of recession. Well, that kind of is naturally now uninflating, at least to some level, as long-term yields are moving higher and short-term yields are staying flat. Now, it might not be great news for stocks as long-term yields move or interest rates move up. And it's definitely not positive for bond prices and that inverse relationship. As that yield goes up, remember, bond prices go down. So similar to what we talked about earlier with the S&P being down about 3% for the quarter, bonds, if you look at the ticker AGG or the ETF that is the U.S. bond market, also down about 3%. So we're seeing that final little bit of adjustment. We saw a lot of it in 2022 to the new interest rate regime. I think we're seeing kind of that final step now, you know, as the yield curve flattens. Dave, anything to add? I'll add one word as to what's performing well in Q3, and that's cash. I mean, when you think about cash yielding money market funds yielding five percent uh that's I, I can't that's been 20 30 years like i mean it's, well not 30 but a long time at least 20 years since we've seen cash yielding that much um interest so to me that's what's performed really well in q3 when you can and our, we always espouse the same advice right hedge your equity market short-term volatility by having a pool of cash that you can draw on so that you're not forced to liquidate assets to raise cash when they're you know at a 20 percent or some sort of um if pullback or or sell off and if you're raising that cash and you're earning 5% on it i mean my gosh that's that's better than most dividend paying stocks so to me that was a that was a huge you know what performed well too but i also look at some of the returns with bonds like Nate was just talking about and if you look at i'll, I'll just pick the vanguard total bond market etf it, the ticker is bnd bravo november delta and if you look at that the 7 year total return on that ETF is negative. That's crazy. A seven-year total return in the U.S. bond market is negative. Okay, why? Well, Nate kind of Nate kind of touched on before. When interest rates go up, the value of bonds go down, and it shouldn't be a shock to anybody listening to this that we've seen one of the fastest in increases in interest rates in in a long time, if not in my lifetime, and. That means bonds have sold off. But, and we're going to get to this a little bit later. But if you're of the opinion that bonds, that interest rates have maybe come very close, if not at the peak right now, and we know that the inverse is true that when yields go down, bond prices go up, you know, even though bonds have a negative return over the past seven years, if you took cash right now or you sold some equities and built out a bond portfolio for the next 10 years, you're probably going to be looking at some historically high yields in a bond portfolio that you build, not to mention any possible price appreciation when interest rates start going down. So a little sidebar there, but that's that's actually what's happening. It's an interesting thought. Yeah. I know we've been talking a lot with clients over the past couple quarters as far as like, you know, they have uncertain cash needs coming up. And, you know, it feels strange to keep money in cash. Like if you're like, I may or may not need this in like a year. I don't know what, I don't necessarily know what to do. And, and I feel like that's been the consistent reframe is that it is okay to be in cash right now because of that yield that you're getting. So, yeah. And, and it, bonds right now, they feel like a one-way conversation still mm. even, I mean, like, look, if you're not, if you're not talking about bonds, if you're not interested in talking about bonds right now, you will never be interested in talking about <laughs> bonds. So just, you know, put a tick mark next to that as I just want to be hundred percent equity for the rest of my life. 
Um, if you have any interest in having bonds inside of a diversified portfolio, everybody should be paying a little bit more attention to what's going on right now. Mm-hmm. Commercial over. Well, no, I have I have one sort of thought. I mean, like you kind of mentioned, like building out a bond portfolio for the next ten years. That may have just been anecdotal or like an example, but like like if if you were someone right now who's kind of looking at their portfolio and saying, you know, I don't really have bond exposure. I hear what you're saying. I think maybe I maybe I would like that, or I need some more diversification. Like I am not that person who just wants 100 percent equities for the rest of my life. Like, are you, you know, would you think about it in terms of like a 10-year duration bond portfolio, or 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 does the circumstances sort of matter? Like, do you have some general thoughts around duration of building out a bond portfolio? The only thing I'd say, if if you need a, if you need bonds, and I'm I'm speaking to this topic with sort of a planner hat on. So thinking of bonds as a cash flow tool rather than an asset allocation diversification decision. Yes, bonds right now, and if you look at how we manage our models more generally and you look into things like flexible asset allocation, what's something we always espouse, which is following trends. Right now, the trend in bonds is horrific. Yields are going up, prices are going down. That's the and Nate, you even called it out. Like TLT, if you go out and you extend your quote unquote duration and you go out and buy long term treasuries, it's been horrific there. Down 13% last quarter alone. So I am speaking to bonds right now purely from the standpoint of cash flow planning. And you've got 10 year bonds. Right now, the 10 year is just shy of 4.7% potentially closing in on 5% soon. Mm-hmm. Something I think is underappreciated by people, Dave, and you talked about cash performing well, 5% in cash. That is not a locked-in rate by any means. That is a variable Very true. interest rate. So Daily. Daily. Right. Correct. Like, yeah. Correct. We could have a disaster, and overnight the Federal Reserve could drop rates to 0%. Sure. Could happen. We could have a disaster overnight and the Federal Reserve could drop rates to zero. Now, chances are it's not going to happen, low probability, but it could happen. So you got to think of the trade-off here. What would you rather have? Would you rather have 5% in something that's daily liquid, but the rate is variable and can change dramatically in a short period of time? Or would you rather lock in rates for 10 years at close to 5%? And a reminder, people, I mean, I know we take this for granted, that 5%, that's not a... That's not a cumulative five. That's five percent every single year. So this is sort of a call to, if you've got the ability to do so, and you've got some cash, and you, you, you have a, a a means of picking up that much yield on an annualized basis. Look at locking in a bond ladder, despite what price trends in the in the bond markets are telling you. And the last thing I'll say, and I'll shut up about it, is you don't have to jump all in into a ten-year bond ladder. Typically, how we do it at Monument how a lot of other groups will do it too, is you go into what they call a ladder. So you'll buy bonds you know, at 10 years, 11 years, so on, and you also have bonds at the short end of the yield curve. And what happens is, let's just say you've got a five-year ladder. Once your, your one-year bond matures, you go buy five years out and it just stair steps down. So that typically can alleviate some pain in increasing interest rates. It's just a laddered approach. 
Yeah, and and a, and a great way to think about a, a bond ladder. If that term doesn't uh, isn't intuitive or, or or something that you totally understand, if you imagine yourself climbing a ladder up, and your your foot, you step up and you step off of one rung and onto the next one up. What you're doing is you're taking the rung that you just stepped off of and putting it back at the top of the ladder, and you keep climbing up. So what you what you could conceivably do is create an infinitely long ladder that you just keep climbing one rung at a time. And that's really what's happening is that when a bond matures, you take the money from that maturity and you put it at, let's just say we're doing a 10-year ladder, you would buy a new 10-year bond because the 10-year just became the nine-year left. That's what a ladder means. And Aaron, I agree with you. The It's really important for cash flow plane to understand that if you subscribe to our theory of hedging your equity risk by having 12 to 18 months of cash, you're, it, the decision to do that now should be much easier than it was a couple years ago when you'd say, yeah, but that cash is gonna, isn't going to earn me anything. You don't, that, you've taken that out of the calculus right now. However, and, and I, I hope to God something like this never happens again, but after 9-11 happened, I mean, interest rates went to zero very, very fast. So it, it, that could happen. Now, that doesn't mean your cash loses value. That just means you're not going to earn interest on it anymore. So to Aaron's point, that if you're sitting down and doing the planning process with somebody like Jessica, Emily, Dean, and Heaven on the planning team, and you're saying, I know I have this cash obligation for the next uh, let's just use college education. I've got two kids. They're separated by four years. So I have got eight years of college education coming up that I need to start paying for. You could buy a bond ladder right now, an eight-year or 10-year bond ladder that's going to produce that guaranteed income so long as there's not a default on the on the underlying security. You're going to have that projected cash flow to pay for college. And at the end of the at the end of the bond maturity, you get your money back so long, again, so long as there isn't a default. That's a really great way to start planning for cash. And now is a fantastic time to do it. And yeah, we'll see the trend change. It's a terrible, from a trend perspective and a relative strength perspective, but the minute interest rates start coming down, that trend is going to change. So you can kind of look at that as the trigger, like when they start, and I'm going to talk about interest rates here in a minute, so I'll just shut up. <laughs> so Yes, all that is to say is find yourself a good wealth manager who you can talk to about building a bond ladder that's custom to you. I think that's yeah, something. Yeah, I know, I, know, I know a great wealth management team I that they can call. I was there, yeah. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just saying, right? I mean, you it's know, a little commercial, biased, but, but you know, right, exactly. Um, <laughs> anyway, all right, well, let's talk surprises. Um, um, both both in the quarter and year to date. Um, I don't know, Aaron or Nate, one of you want to, guys want to start? We already talked a lot about interest rates, so my surprise is going to be adjacent to that. The fact that we've had interest rates rise as fast as they they have. Dave, it was either Dave or Nate said something about you know rates have gone close to five percent in such a short period of time. Nate, you even said TLT, which is the long term Treasury ETF, that was down thirteen percent alone last quarter. Related to that, as rates continue to, to rise, my the biggest surprise for me is we haven't seen any other defaults or hints of defaults or stress in the banking sector, which is, is actually pretty interesting because when you get a severe move in rates in such a short period of time, that typically doesn't bode well, particularly for the banking system. So banks have been pretty resilient here over the third quarter. And in fact, I'm going to call back out to our relative rotation graph again. We talked about energy being in that leading quadrant. XLF, which is the the sector spider ticker for financials, a very large component of that are banks. That was the third worst performing, I'm sorry, the third best performing sector during last quarter. It was down only 1%. So in essence, it was flat. And if you go back to that RRG plot, it is the only other sector of the 11 
that is skirting the improving into leading quadrant. So it actually looks pretty decent from a relative return standpoint, which again, given how fast interest rates have moved and how much they moved, that's a bit surprising to me. I think Aaron brings up a good point that an expected negative economic data point or from market data point maybe was going to be failures or default from the highlight from the move in interest rates. You know, we haven't seen that. And I want to touch on two other data points, but I think the big point that I'm really coming to in Q3 is the Fed deserves some credit. A lot of people in the financial media like don't enjoy giving federal agencies credit, but really they have nailed it. And I understand why people didn't want to give them the benefit of the doubt. Historically, the Fed has not always been perfect at navigating past inflation cycles. The 80s is a good example with double dip recessions and inflation coming roaring back. There's arguments that they held interest rates at zero for too long. But looking at just the instance of them hiking, they've really walked the financial policy tightrope and kind of are nailing it. And the reason I say that is really from two data points. It's really inflation and the jobs market, which is their dual mandate and what they're meant to do. The job market is essentially, when you look at the unemployment rates, has remained relatively flat since beginning of last year. And during that time, we've raised interest rates to near, what, 5.5%, over 5%, and they're projected to stay there for years. That should have been something that a lot of investors, I think, would have crippled markets. And if you're looking over the long term, Yes, there's been pain. Dave, you mentioned we're still 10% off the all-time high, but we're stabilizing. And the big reason for that is what you're seeing in the inflation trends. You look at headline, I like to look more at core inflation personally, and I wrote about that in a recent piece. What core inflation does is it removes volatile swings in energy and food. They are a key piece of inflation, but sometimes they move for reasons that aren't more long-term or systemic. So what core inflation is really made up of is goods, services, and housing. Goods had a lot of effects from the pandemic where we saw demand just spike prices and we've seen it come back down to zero, sometimes even negative in some cases. When you're talking about housing, Dave, you've mentioned it, and I think we can talk about it as much as this panel kind of wants to, but housing is a lagging, especially a lagging economic indicator, especially the official data series. When you're looking at more current ones, and Zillow has a good one of observed rents, you're seeing that already rolling over back to a 2% level. So while the official data hasn't caught up yet, if you're looking more at the real-time metrics, housing inflation is kind of, I don't want to say this, I'm a knock on wood, under control. The last piece is services, and that's driven by wage growth. And wage growth is something employees, workers, the economy needs to sustain because we need to maintain purchasing power as inflation goes. If that's the one piece of inflation that remains above pre-pandemic trends, that's fine. Because for a long time, with 0% inflation, low wage growth is okay. What you want to see is real wage growth. And if you look at the current measures you're seeing of disposable personal income, which is a statistic of you know incomes across, and especially adjusted for real, so adjusted to inflation, those are still positive. All that says is consumer spending is being able, is sustainable, the job market is remaining strong, and inflation is coming down naturally, and the Fed is now signaling they're done. I'm going to be a little hyperbolic and say I don't see the hole in their argument right now. And I, they just deserve a little bit of praise. No one's saying it. So that's why I'm being maybe a little more strong than I will be. A lot of data to still unfold. They could pivot. Everything could collapse if we sure. talked about. But for now, they deserve their moment in the sun. Yeah, it's also the seventh inning, though. You know, so, right? Fair. <laughs> so Fair. Yeah, we, need we need a closer. Right. And that can mm-hmm. happen. It can. Though. It can. I, I, do, I do think some of the things that, that the market's a little uh, skittish about right now is, you know, will they or won't they stop or you know, increase again, and you you'll get on the news. You'll hear somebody 
I, I don't know all their names, but somebody will get on the news and say, you know, we may have one more rate hike left. And I think people look at that and they say, well, wait a second, right? Because now I'll get to my my surprises mm-hmm. here. Okay, so here here I'm gonna I'm gonna string together a bunch of data that that each individually I find surprising, but then I will I will unveil my big surprise at the end. So everybody just buckle Hold up. Hold your horses. Here. Okay, yeah. here we go. Surprises. Mortgage rates at 7.31%, right? 30-year fixed rate mortgage. Rate. Pending home sales at the are at the same level now, pending home sales, as they were in April of 2020, which by the way, in April of 2020, the economy was basically shut down, right? So, ouch. Core PCE, which is the Fed's preferred measure of inflation, has declined from its peak and is currently at about 38, 3.9%, and it's still falling, okay? The M2 money supply one-year percentage change has gone from the COVID skyrocketing year-over-year change of 26.9%, so 27% increase in the money supply to now at a negative 3.7%. So, you know, money is out, is, is negative money growth. Okay, and then U.S. monthly rents are about, 1.2% lower now than they were a year ago. And that's kind of to Nate's point about it's a lagging indicator. So if rents are at a 1.2% lower than they were a year ago, and that's an eight-month lagging piece of data, my big surprise is that no one is talking about the possibility of deflation. That's my big surprise. And Dave, I think you bring up a really good point with the data, with the data we're talking about. Is a soft landing doesn't mean no pain. It, it means that there will be some pain, but they want to keep it manageable while we adjust. So it could be bumpy from here. And I think having a wall of worry is always healthy for the markets. When I get nervous about the markets is when no one is saying anything is wrong. With the possibility of deflation, like you just mentioned, student loan payments, if we're going to talk about current topics, energy, you know, cost spiking, there still is some of that out there. So as much as I want to like shine on the Fed, there you seventh inning. Yeah, great yeah. point. Yeah, but but I'll also tie this back to the conversation that the three of us, the four of us, were all having about a bond portfolio, which is, okay, let's just say that there is uh, this. Uh, you know, I like to talk about possibilities versus probabilities, right? Is it possible that interest rates continue to go up significantly from where we are right now? Of course, it is. Is it probable? I think it's more probable that we start seeing easing of interest rates than we see multiple continued iteration of Fed hike. So with all of that data that I just threw off and the, this, the specter of deflation, which again, I think the big surprise is not many people are talking about that. But when I look at that, those pieces of data, I say the probability of interest rates going down is higher than interest rates going up. And if I am wrong, interest rates going up are not infinite. We're talking about maybe 25 more basis points. So back to the bond thing, if you're like, okay, I like to buy high and sell low, and I like to project out cash flows that I can count on for the next 10 years, well, I'm back to the bond thing. I'm back to the bond thing. So, and I'm not saying everybody should have bonds, right? I'm just saying that if you have a need to project some cash flow, uh, constant, consistent, reliable cash flow, bonds, bonds. I hate bonds. And, bonds. and just want to clarify your comments, Dave, on on buy high, sell low. You mean that in terms of yields, and not on not that's prices. correct. Just I'm sorry. Wanna, that's, just thank you for that. the clarification. Right, right, mm-hmm. yes, right. Because when yields are high and they go down, when you're the, the bond, the prices of bonds that you buy right now will increase in value. So, thank you 
yes, it can get tricky sometimes. So, okay, that's that's my big surprise. No one's talking about deflation. Um, so let's zoom out. Um, and can you guys talk about what to do with all this information that we've talked about thus far? We've already pretty much covered what what I had kind of was thinking for 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 us when we were talking about this section, which is, hey, look to lock in some yield right here. Don't don't hold out for another zero point two five percent from another rate increase or or don't think you're going to be able to completely call the top in yields because you're not. Nobody can. Don't be afraid to, to lock in long-term yields at this point. If it's appropriate for you and you've, uh, you've got a defined cash flow need because a bond ladder, absent any defaults, is a, a pretty damn good um, cash flow tool for you. Very transparent, uh, moderately liquid, and can be customized to you. And, you know, Nate, Dave, and myself, we're the we're the ones that can help you do that. So don't be afraid to lock in some yield. Hmm. Nate, how about you? I mean, to beat a dead horse, we always talk about, I mean, it's cash flow management. Um, so I won't talk about that a whole lot. I'll kind of flip it and talk about the other side. It, it, not the cash that you're generating. It's also the cash that you're paying in debt. So interest rates, there's a two piece of that conversation. We've talked a lot about that cash and cash management, whether you're a business, a business owner, or just, you know, Joe and Steve down the street. You got to manage your cash to earn income, but you also have to manage what your debt expense is. So if you haven't looked at any of your floating debts, it's always this is a good time to review them as we're approaching kind of the peak. If interest rates maybe do move lower, now that refinance conversation can come back on the table. But now is the time when you can get the planning done on the debt side, just evaluate where am I at? So if interest rates do move, you know, you might be ready to capitalize if there's a little bit of a decline. So, but again, cash management, we talk about a lot. It's a key piece of how you build asset allocations and interest rates make this a much more active conversation. Great, Dave? Yeah, I think this isn't gonna come off as a surprise to anybody, but from a very high level, everyone listening to this that is an investor in the equity markets has to remember that the S&P 500 averages on an intra-year basis, right? So that means in the middle of every single calendar year, there's a drop of, on average, going back to 43 years. So that's Nate. Oh, by the way, Nate just found out that he passes CFA level one. So I'll ask him to uh, check my math on this, (laughs) but that goes back to 1980, right? So 43 years of data. Uh, am I good there, Nate? Okay. Good job. Good job. Yep. <laughs> okay. Perfect. So, so every so every single calendar year, going back forty three years, there is an, an average drop of fourteen point three percent in the S and P five hundred. And so, even though there's an average drop of fourteen point three percent every single calendar year, thirty two of those forty three calendar years have yielded positive returns in the S&P 500 by December 31st. So when I go back to possibilities and probabilities, I just say like, you have a high probability of getting positive returns every single year in the market if you stay in it for the long term with a good investment plan, even when there are 14.3% drops. So what do you do? Here comes the broken record. You hold cash as a short-term hedge, again, at 5% right now, by the way, daily. Uh, and don't try to don't try to time getting in and out of the market based on what you think will or won't happen or what the news is saying or anything like that. That increases your chances of success just playing the probabilities. So that's, that's my what to do with this info. Good context as always. And, um, you know, for those of you who have been longtime listeners, um, you know that uh, in January, we'll release an episode where we'll talk about Q4, but really we more look at kind of the whole year as a whole. And I think that'll also, I think you guys will have some interesting lessons to take away from 2023. So 
more to come on that. Um, yeah, but I, I suspect that we'll also review everybody, all the big uh, research firms, what their predictions <laughs> were for 2023. Sure. We'll pull them all up and we'll go over and we'll see we'll see who who is right and who is wrong. So I know, and well, as part of that, we can also review the three of you. <laughs> exactly. Um, right. well, we do it for fun. We do it for fun. That's yes. true. That's true. You guys don't hold yourselves out there as as trying to predict the future, but they are kind of fun to talk about. And, they are. And yeah. people, yeah, who have been following along this year know that um, Nate, Aaron, and Dave did make some uh, predictions uh, earlier in the year in, in Q1 in Q2. Um, I thought it would be fun to, for each of you to kind of just remind the listener, what was your prediction? And uh, maybe do a little like check in as far as like how you're feeling about your prediction. If you're still holding out, you still have confidence in yourself or or maybe if your thinking might have changed um, between now and the end of the year. I think I think what's the bet? It's, it's a sandwich, right? Lunch from somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'll, I can kick it off. Um, so my prediction in Q1 on the podcast was that the Fed would not cut rates in 2023. And a theme we have here at the Monument Department is don't cut your winners. And right now that's looking like mm. a pretty good winner. Um, with the Fed saying that they're going to hike one more time, if you look kind of at the bond markets, the probability they're pricing in a hike is lower than that. It's at 38% roughly. But there's no cuts in the next two meetings that are being priced in or discussed. And so that is a Jimmy John sandwich that I think Aaron may owe me in 2024. Uh, around that, I still do feel good about it. And kind of my whole theme of the podcast has been I do think it's kind of the right action for the Fed to remain data dependent. They've shown the ability to pause as I don't know if they want to use that word, but I'm going to use it to be judicious and not just hike us into a recession. That is possible. And that kind of remains the big elephant in the room. But at least for 2023, the Fed seems on pace to not cut rates. All right. Nate's sticking with his prediction. So, Aaron, how about you? Looks like mine was S&P would be up 10% in the second half. Not looking good so far, down 3.5%. But uh, I am going to continue to put my, uh, put my confidence in that prediction. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold the line there. And in fact, I'm going to double down. I'm going to say there's a there's a, Ooh, there's a 40% this. chance that we actually get 20% in the second half of 2023. So better than that, of course, through the through the end of the year, given what we did in the third quarter. And the reason I said 40% on this, I just kind of thought of this, and I wanted to read this tweet to you guys. This is I don't know where this is from, some someplace on Twitter, but the title of this blurb is "How to Get Attention." And think about this the next time you're you're reading someone you know, give up a, a pot or a probability on TV or in the news. Mm -hmm. If you want to get famous for making big non-consensus calls, like I just made here, without the danger of looking like a Muppet, you should adopt the quote 40% rule. Basically, you can forecast whatever you want with a probability of 40%. Greece to quit <laughs> the Euro? Maybe. <laughs> Trump to fire Powell and hire his daughter as the new Fed chair? Never say never. 40% means the odds will be greater than anyone else is saying which is why your clients need to listen to your warning, but also they shouldn't be too surprised if, you know, the extreme event doesn't actually happen. So there you go. I wow. say 40%. Yeah. We're going to end second half of 2023 up 20%. Nice. Nice. Okay. <laughs> I have a 40% chance that uh, both uh, Aaron and Nate are right. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> so so my, my prediction in Q1 was that the S&P 500 would be up 15% for 2023. And then in Q2, I had the prediction that the Fed was at its target rate of 2% on inflation. And we've seen the last of 
rate hikes. So I, I think my quote was, we have seen the last rate hikes. Okay, so so maybe I'm right there with an asterisk because what I didn't say was we have seen the last rate hike, right? <laughs> we have seen the last of rate hikes. That could mean like one or two, uh, you know. So anyway, I'm gonna say like asterisk there because hmm. I was I was in the ballpark. I was in I was in the ballpark there, right? But the S and P 500 up to you know 20 uh, in 2023 up 15 percent. You know, the S&P 500 finished up a positive 13.1% in Q3 after a 3.3% sell-off. And that's going into what's historically one of the better months of the year, which is October, not so far, but historically it is. It's also historically one of the best quarters of the year, the fourth quarter. And it's also this presidential cycle, presidential election cycle, which has some, you know, historical probability of of being a good time too. So I, I think Aaron could actually end up being right on his prediction. I think I'm going to stick with my prediction of up 15%. So and and I also still think the Fed is probably done and maybe even behind uh, lowering. Uh, that's referenced my deflation commentary. So I'm sticking with my stuff. There you go. I I think you definitely get an asterisk. You know, it's not we're, we always talk about. You don't have to call the right. top or the bottom. Yeah, you just got to be. Right. The, it's asterisk. It's yeah, asterisk. It's like I don't yeah. know. And right. it's all for what, fun. What what would happen? What would happen if I'm on a par three on the golf course and I hit one into the water? So I tee off again and I hit a hole in one. Did I get a hole in one? Not technically, but asterisk. I'd still take the flag and have to buy everybody drinks. I, you know. So you know. There you Great go. Great poll question. <laughs> all right, we'll stick around and see who wins right. the sandwich. So that's right. <laughs> it's Great. Really high stakes at Monument. Um, Great. Anyway, well, thank you guys as always for your insights. And yeah, as I said, we'll be back in January to do a full recap of 2023, what's happened in the markets, and and yeah, I'm I'm hoping that you guys are right and that Q4 is is a really strong finish to the year. Yeah, and and if we're wrong. You know, hey, everybody had 12 to 18 months of cash, right? So there you go. There you go. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks. Bye. The previous presentation by Monument Capital Management LLC was intended for general information purpose only. No portion of the presentation services as the receipt of or as a substitute for personalized investment advice from Monument or any other investment professional of your choosing. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk, and it should not be assumed that future performance of any specific investment or investment strategy or any non-investment related or planning services, discussion or content will be profitable be suitable for your portfolio or individual situation, or prove successful. Monument is neither a law firm nor accounting firm, and no portion of its services should be construed as legal or accounting advice. No portion of the content should be construed by a client or prospective client as a guarantee that he or she will experience a certain level of results if Monument is engaged or continues to be engaged to provide investment advisory services. Moreover, you should not assume that any discussion or information contained in this presentation serves as the receipt of or as a substitute for personalized advice from Monument. A copy of Monument's current rain disclosure brochure discussing our advisory services and fees is available upon request or at www.monumentwell.com.